How many times do you hear the phrase, age is just a number? The question is, do you believe it? Because if you do, the sky truly is the limit. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and right now it is time to start growing bolder. And over the next hour, you will hear from people who not only believe it is never too late, but who actually are out there proving it. And our hope is that their stories will inspire you to take your best shot, to follow your dreams, and get out there and make a difference. You are about to meet some pretty incredible people who will convince you that if they can do it, you can too. Nick Nanton is going to show you that it's never too late to go after your passions. Nick is a producer, director, author, documentarian, storyteller, songwriter, CEO, and speaker who believes in sharing the uplifting stories of celebrities from all walks of life. And then you'll meet 102-year-old physician Gladys McGarry, who if she had retired back at age 65, would have missed out on what she says has been the most rewarding 37 years of her career. She's considered the mother of holistic medicine in America, and you will get her prescription for a long and healthy life. But first, another inspiring story of a woman who had her first book published at the age of 65. It became a bestseller and a television series, and now Bonnie Garmus is living a whole new life. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives, this is Growing Bolder. Well, how many times have you thought to yourself, you know what, I ought to write a book. I'm Bill Schaefer, this is Growing Bolder, and we're about to meet a fascinating person who, in her mid-60s, got published for the very first time. And you know what, her book has become a bestseller and has been now for over a year. And oh, did I mention that Apple TV Plus has picked it up and got Oscar winner Brie Larson to star in a series version of it? Folks, this is a great story, and she's proof there is no age limit on living your dream, and it really is never too late. The book is called Lessons in Chemistry. Let's say hi to Bonnie Garmus. Bonnie, how you doing? Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. I'm really excited to be here. Hey, is this a long-distance call today? I mean, are we on, on the hook for charges here? Where are you, Bonnie? Yeah, yeah, it's really long-distance. I'm in London. <laughs> yeah, the charges, I, I had them reversed. That's fantastic. You you lived for a long time in the Seattle area, right? Yeah, in fact, we still have a house there because we were transferred abroad. We were in uh, Switzerland for almost seven years, and now we're in London. Um, but we'll go back to, I'm sure, Seattle eventually. Bonnie, listen to your life. Are Are, are you living the dream? Well, I think I am. <laughs> I think I am. I, you know, I, it's really been amazing for me. I, you know, I, I'm really, really grateful to all the readers out there. I can't say enough about readers. Well, well, let's look at this. So, so when did the dream start? You know, for those of us who are thinking, hey, maybe it's too late for me to do anything like Bonnie did. When did all this start to happen for you? Well, I mean, honestly, I've been writing since I was five and my job was as a writer. I was a copywriter um, and I, I've been, I don't know, you know, I think any kind of writing you do, you're honing your craft and fiction writing is very much dependent on craft. So I had a lot of time to practice. Plus I wrote, I've written 
another novel and a half before Lessons in Chemistry. One I didn't finish, that's the half. And the second one I did finish, I was very proud of it. It never got picked up. I got 98 rejections from agents. And so when I sat down to write Lessons in Chemistry, I had no hope at all that it was ever going to be picked up. But you know what? I just decided I was going to write it anyway, because why not? That's what I really want to do. And this one worked. <laughs> well, Bonnie, when you say why not, I mean, that that's a huge question. You were rejected. Not, you sent something out 98 times and got 98 no's? You know, it's, yeah, you know, you have to be really good at rejection if you want to be a writer. I think if you want to do anything in the creative arts, you better be really good at, at hearing the word no and not committing suicide every night. You know, you just have to say, okay, and move on. This person didn't get it. Okay, move on. And um, for that last book, I got 98 rejections, but I couldn't get anyone to read it. So I got 98 rejections on an unread manuscript <laughs> because wow. it was very long and no one wanted to read anything long. And that's, I learned my lesson and I wrote a much shorter book for Lessons in Chemistry. But it could have shattered you, though, right? It could have very, and, and I'm and I'm sure this happened to you because it it happens to all of us in life. When when you tell people, even your friends, you know, you say, "Hey, well, you know, I'm writing a book." You get a lot of people that kind of roll their eyes and go, "Oh, how nice! Uh, good luck with that." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't. I rarely talk about writing with my friends, even with my family. I'm I'm pretty quiet about it because. I think, first of all, for me, the process of writing is mostly in my head. I'm living in my imagination and trying to explain what's going on to other people. It just doesn't work. So, for instance, when I did tell one friend I was writing lessons in chemistry, and when I told her what it was about, she just looked at me like, you've got to be kidding me. Why are you spending your time wasting your day writing? And it was actually in the evening. Why are you wasting your evenings writing about a woman in the 60s who's a chemist who doesn't want to go on TV and teach cooking. And, you know, when you say it like that, good point. But um, I kept going. I'm glad I did. Yeah, Bonnie, if I was a publisher, I probably would tell you, if you can't picture Fabio on the cover, it's probably <laughs> not a good book. Yeah. So Lessons in Chemistry, one of the one of the interesting things, one of the many interesting things is that this is a book that I guess you could say was born out of anger. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, it is really interesting. Um, I think one reporter described it as feminist rage, and I wouldn't say it was rage. Now I say it's constructive anger. I think women always get tagged with rage. And in fact, what it was that day, I was in a meeting at work and my ideas had been pushed aside. Um, I wasn't even credited with my ideas that a man later went on to credit himself for every, all of my work that I'd done for that meeting uh, for a major campaign. And that day, I was so mad, I went back to my desk. That certainly wasn't the first time I'd, I'd um, been in a meeting where I'd been talked over. I was the only woman in this meeting that day. That also wasn't very unusual. And when I went back to my desk, as I was walking back, I kept thinking, how many other women in the world just went through the same thing today? What a waste of time and, and effort and talent. And I was so mad that instead of doing what I was being paid to do that day, I sat down and I wrote the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry at Work, which when I think back, I guess they paid for that. And I'm really glad <laughs> they did. 
again, Bonnie, this goes back to, you know, you, you, your story and the book are so intertwined and, and both of them equally interesting. I, I think we can all learn from you because all of us have indignities or, or things that happen to us that shouldn't. And they can either break us or they can make us sit down and say, I'm going to show you. And, and that's what you're such a great example of. Well, thanks. You know, I mean, it's not like I didn't kick the furniture a little bit, um, especially when I was getting rejected all those times. It's not like I didn't ever give up because I did. I did lose hope and I did give up. But there's a there's something about it's not really giving up as much as it is stepping back, allowing yourself to accept the failure and then just saying that was one person. I'm moving on. And and then you find you know, you find some some faith in yourself, some belief in yourself. And so while the story of Elizabeth Zott is kind of intertwined with my own feelings about sexism and misogyny, it's actually the story of women around the world, as I've, you know, discovered talking to women around the world now. But it's also the same story with men around the world, that they've, you know, there are plenty of men who have also been cast aside for very many reasons. And, uh, and so a lot of people can find themselves in Elizabeth Zott's shoes, and they're anxious to see how she handles these situations. So when I was writing Elizabeth Zott, I was really writing my own role model. And, um, and I'm really glad to hear that she's become a role model for quite a few people. Okay, that's a great point. Let's talk about that, too, because it, it really it's a human story. And we can talk about having resolve and, and not being discouraged when everybody tells you no. That's all well and good, but there is another side of that. And the other side is you've got to have some talent and you've really got to have a good product. And not a lot of authors come out of the shoot and drive straight to the top. So what have you done? What What is in this book? What is in Elizabeth that struck such a nerve that people who, everybody, A, everybody wants to read it. And two, after they do, people really like it. <laughs> well, you know, again, it's really been a shock to me. Um, you know, when you're writing, you're always alone. Um, and you don't really know if what you're writing is going to really connect to other people. But like I said, I've been a copywriter and copywriters are people who I think can connect with other people on the basis of empathy. And Elizabeth Zott is a very empathetic character, but she's also very, very strong. And she she understands what it is that she wants to be. And she understands that the things that are set in her path are myths created by our society. And so she chooses simply to ignore the myths and do what she thinks is right. And I, I think that is what attracts so many people to the story, that we all are faced by these obstacles and unfairness. And um, in Elizabeth Zott's case, she sees these things as scientific ignorance. You know, racism is certainly a great example of scientific ignorance, as is sexism, as is ageism. If people really don't understand what people are made of, and you know, they, it's 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 not so much our age, it's never our race, it's never our gender, it's who we are, and we're all very very different inside in many ways, but we're also very much alike, and the feeling of being held back is something that's a universal feeling. We're talking about uh, sexism and we're talking about misogyny and things like that. What? 
Can you give us a little idea of what it's been like for you at this stage in your life? Uh, have, have you experienced ageism? Has it been weird kind of shooting out like a firework here in your, in your 60s instead of in your 20s? <laughs> you know, it, people have been great, honestly. Yeah, I have experienced a little bit of ageism, but it's the really funny kind where um, people say, do you need to sit down? Do you need to rest? You know, um, if I'm on a tour or something like that, it's it's funny because um, to me, because, you know, I exercise a lot. So I think in one way, I'm trying to maintain my, my physical health, of course, but um, I do get kind of mentally tired sometimes on, on a tour because, as I said, I work alone and on a tour, you're surrounded by people all the time. And that's a very different experience. But, yeah, it's been I wouldn't say that people have said, how did you ever do this in your 60s? In fact, the biggest thing that I get is from young people saying, thank God you did this in your 60s. That means I don't have to accomplish this by the time I'm 30. Because they're seeing these limits that have been set for them. And they realize, looking at me, well, maybe there aren't these limits that I've been brought up on. Again, such a great point. And going through the book, I mean, I don't know if you could have written this in your 20s or 30s. I mean, it's, the, the book is set in the 60s. And so you kind of get that feel of, well, it is in our generation. But all the issues are still so much at the forefront and things that we still struggle with. And I know some of this was based on, on, on your mom. And what a tribute to her. What would she have thought of this book? Oh, she'd be really unhappy about all the swearing in the book. My mother really <laughs> didn't like people who swore, swore, but she, uh, no, she'd be very proud. You know, my mom was a human dynamo uh, and she was a, she was a nurse and she's an extremely capable woman. And, um, and yet she was really not allowed to pursue what she wanted to do. And I really think in my neighborhood growing up, there were all those women. I looked up to all of those women. They were all at home with us kids. And I, I think looking back, I did not appreciate how much went into raising all of us. And uh, and now I do. Now I really get it. And unfortunately, you know, my mom is not alive. She wasn't alive to see this happen. But I did want to dedicate the book to her and to women like her because I want them to be seen because of those women we have or we, you know, women's rights moved forward. Right now, they're kind of moving backwards in the United States. But um, they, these women were, the, were the, some of the women who, of course, spawned that movement. And I'm proud of them. You know, people always want to, they find an author they like and they do want to learn about them. And they kind of want to lock onto them and look up to them and hold them up there. And that's an amazing responsibility that maybe you didn't even think about. When you, when you first got published, but yet you, you've stepped into this role with such ease. It's almost like your life's been leading up to this. And how cool that people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s really are looking up to you and saying, there's somebody that really gets it. <laughs> well, I think they might be looking up to me thinking, what a relief. You know, I think I, think I have such empathy for young people, especially right now. You know, the job market for them is pretty tough. And I think of how 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 many kids feel like they have to know what they want to do at a very young age, and then they have to follow this very certain path in order to get ahead. And and none of that is true. None of that is true. And I I just want to offer hope to these younger people. I don't care if they're you know eighteen or thirty or forty or even fifty. You know, 
you can keep changing. In fact, you should keep changing. You should keep reaching for other things. And you don't have to worry that the job that you have right now is the job you're going to have the rest of your life. It, it, it doesn't work that way. I guess if that's what I can impart to people, that there are always going to be things in your way and age turns out not to be one of them unless you decide your age is a problem. What's next for you in life? Uh, moving forward, is, was the book a one-off? Is there something else coming along? Oh, no. You know, it's, it's, it's with incredible gratitude that I say that I get to write full-time now because that didn't happen before for me. I wanted to work, first of all, but I had to work. And I think anybody who's out there going, I work full-time and I have a family and I'm trying to write a book on the side, why can't I get it done? Well, I know why you can't get it done because you work full time and you have a family. And all I want to say to those people is that, you know, time shifts for what you really want to do. And for me, um, I finally realized that my job was really getting in the way of what I wanted to do. Like it is, that's so true for so many people. And so I had to shift the way I started my day. And that meant that I had to get up super early before work to do the kind of writing that I really wanted to do. And the book is hopefully not a one-off. I'm working on another book. I really have a, I think like most writers, a love-hate relationship with writing. I think it's hard. I don't, I don't sit down and go, oh, yay, when the blank page appears. But what I do love is getting into the story, getting into the characters and exploring new things and making new connections. For me, that's worth it. The uh, Apple TV series, are you involved in that at all? You think they have like a role for you in there? Oh my gosh, they offered me a role. I turned it down. What? I am not an actress. I, I respect those people. Are they crazy? That You don't want me on screen. But I, no, I didn't work on it. I turned it over to uh, Aggregate Films and Apple TV. And I was very lucky because Brie Larson, before it was signed by Apple, she she called me on Zoom and said, I want to... I want to do this. I want to be the executive producer and I want to star in this. And then it all came together from there, which, you know, was pretty amazing. So I'm not involved in it. And I think it's all done. I saw a little bit of it and they were, they needed to go back and do some editing. So I don't really know how it's going to turn out, but you know what? It's a great team of people out there. And no matter what, I'll always be a little biased and I will probably think the book was better, but I couldn't have had a nicer team of people to work with. And look at all that's happening in your life. I mean, this is, you are like past what a generation ago would have been the, the hardline retirement age. And all of this exciting things are happening and you have so much more to give. It just kicked the floodgates open. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is really funny. I really worried about retirement. When I was 60, when I turned 60, you know how people go, oh my God, I'm 60. I, I kept thinking, oh no, I'm going to be forced into retirement. What will I do? So I like to work. I've always liked to work. And I, and I literally thought at that time when I was 60, I got to finish this book. I have to have a new career, a career that doesn't care how old I am. And then, and then I realized that people really do care how old you are. And it's, I didn't know that for a writer because no one ever remembers the writer. When you open a book, you don't ever say, this book was written by a 33-year-old. I've never said that in my life. And so I thought, this is really what I hope I can do, but it's a very hard career to choose. But still, I want to march towards it. I have to try. 
This is fantastic. It's such a great story. I want to give you. I just want to give you one chance before we wrap up to kind of give us the Bonnie Garman pep talk. You know what? What is it that you want us to know? Uh, what's the moral of your story? Well, I mean, I think I'm one of those people that would always say, "Don't give up." And I don't mean don't give up. Give up. You can fail, and you can back off, and you can refuel, and you can feel bad, and you can kick the furniture, but don't give up on yourself. Don't start believing what your boss may have said to you or what somebody at work may have said to you or that, you know, I don't know, someone who has put you down. Don't think that that's true when you have a different vision of yourself that you know is more true. You've excelled at other things. You've done other things in your life. Those all count and those all matter. And you have to put those in the self-esteem bank, I guess. And then you have to move forward and say, you know, I did that. I bet I can do this. And then on the days you fail, well, you know, kick the furniture, clean the bathroom, whatever. But just get up again because the only person that you're going to let down is yourself. And, you know, we're all very good at letting ourselves down, but that's a choice that you can make. You don't have to do that. That's awesome. Great advice from one of the hottest writers going today. Isn't it awesome to to hear that? The book is called Lessons in Chemistry, and if you haven't heard about it yet, folks, go get it, read it, watch the series. You're going to love it. It's going to help open your eyes. It's going to help make you want to steel yourself against anything that comes your way. And instead of saying, I can't, you'll start saying, why not? Its author is Bonnie Garmus. Bonnie, thank you for the wisdom, the information, the inspiration, and the pep talk. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you so much, Bill. I love being here. Up next, 102-year-old physician Gladys McGarry and her prescription for how you can also live to 102. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. You know, we talk all the time about how to have a life well-lived, but we don't seem to talk a lot about how you're supposed to do it. Well, I'm Bill Schaefer, and right now on Growing Boulder, that's exactly what we're going to do. In fact, we're about to have a physician write us a prescription for it. Ah, but does she have enough experience? Well, I think so, because she's 102 years old. So I think she's probably been around the block a time or two. But oh, you're thinking, well, what has she contributed? Let me tell you this, folks, so much that she's contributed. She is considered the mother of holistic medicine. Yeah, she's also the founder of the International Academy on Clinical Hypnosis. And what do today's top physicians think of her? Well, Mark Hyman called her a global pioneer who helped transform our very definition of health and healing. Folks, this is a person who is a treasure to humanity. She has just written a book, which really is a gift to us all. It's called The Well-Lived Life, a 102-year-old doctor's six secrets to health and happiness at every age. She is Dr. Gladys McGarry. How are you, Dr. Gladys? 
I'm fine, thank you. I'm old, but I'm fine. <laughs> Gosh, you know, when you became a physician, it was a big shock for a woman to become a doctor, much less one of the top doctors in the entire country. Well, I was fortunate that my mother ahead of me was a doctor. And, you know, so I had a, a role model to follow, and that was awesome. And now you're being a role model for so many other people, not just gender-wise and not just age-wise, but also you represent keeping an open mind. You represent asking questions, not rejecting very quickly. You don't just look at test results from a test, but you look at an entire person to try to heal them, not just their body, but their mind and, and the essence of who they are as well. You think this is critically important. Oh, I think it's vital. You really do see healing in a very different way. I mean, one of the questions that you'll ask them is, what do you live for? What, what, is, right. what is important? What is your purpose? You know, most of us don't even know how to answer that. So what do you tell them? What does that have to do with our health? I just have to ask them until they think about it a little bit. Because so many people have not even been asked that question. I mean, when, when somebody asks a person that has never thought about it, what they live for, it usually, it frequently takes them off guard and they really don't know. At which point I pursue this subject and say, what was, well, what is it that you really that you really like. And we followed the path of what it is that makes them really understand what it is that they're doing and why they're asking me the questions they're asking and so on. And it becomes a journey for each one of us to start looking for what it is that really makes us sing, that really makes us feel like we, we're here for a purpose, which we are. And Dr. McGarry, that only becomes more and more important as we age. This is, this is the book that she wrote. It's called The Well-Lived Life. And I want to point out the subheading is 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Any Age. We ignore people we tend to ignore people once they hit 60 or 70 or 80 and figure they're set in their ways or maybe they're not as important as younger people. But in truth, it's the opposite. And in many cases, as we age, we need to understand these secrets to health and happiness as much as anybody else. Absolutely. In fact, when we start looking for them, it's amazing what we find for ourselves which other people may not find for themselves. It's, it's kind of introducing ourselves to the human race. You know, and you're talking about things that most physicians, if you go to your primary care physician once a year, he doesn't want to hear about that. He checks your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and out you go. Conventional medicine has focused on getting rid of diseases and pain. And so a lot of our physicians don't like to work with patients who have chronic illnesses. I find them to be the, some of the most important and interesting people to work with because 
I know that the disease and the pain are aspects of their being that is in the process of teaching them some secrets that they need to know about themselves. It's bringing their attention to that inner physician within them. Oh, so this this is huge. This is a big point. So what you're saying is like normally if we get a pain, we think of that as that's what's got to be eradicated. Pain is the enemy. But you're saying, no, no, no. Pain is kind of like an alarm to let us know that there's something wrong. Absolutely. My eldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon, but when he got through his medical training in orthopedics, he said to me, Mom, you know, I'm going into the world and I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I, I don't know if I can handle that. And I said, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that it's your job to do orthopedics, which is amazing. But then when you've done your job, which is awesome, you look to the patient for the actual healing because the colleague that you have is that doctor within that patient. That's the person who actually does the healing. And it's convincing ourselves that we have that not just that power, but that understanding of how healing actually happens. So this is Dr. Gladys McGarry with us, folks. And what she's saying is that medicines and procedures and surgeries and things like that are just ways of putting the body in its best possible position to be able to fight off the ailments that we have, that it's actually us ourselves that are doing the healing. And, you know, you've seen the discovery of so many medicines and so many treatments. And of them all, is it true that you still believe the most powerful medicine we've ever discovered is love? Absolutely. The Native Americans always knew that. And when A.T. Still started his journey into his concept of osteopathy, he spent time 10 months with a, a tribe working with the with the shaman and understanding what those shaman were saying about what healing is about and it's taking the ancient ancient wisdom which people have passed down from generation to generation to generation and adapting it to where we are now so that we can use that wisdom. Well, we sort of stopped that, though, didn't we? Right around the time when you were uh, coming up, we we kind of switched to a lab-based kind of healing, and healthcare has moved to where we're getting closer to just having a virtual primary care physician who looks at your numbers and prescribes medicine for you. Right, right. How do you think healthcare will change moving into the future? Oh, I hope we can recall some of what we actually knew. Well, and and you could see how that's needed. I mean, there's so many mental health issues in the country today. Depression, depression runs rampant. People have anxiety. It's almost like commonplace now. Autoimmune diseases, you know, everything is triggered by not knowing where we fit in life uh, or not really understanding that, that we're all connected and part of each other. I, I, you even go as far to say we, we need to pay attention to our dreams. 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Our unconscious mind is a beautiful, beautiful teacher if we pay attention to it in amazing ways. It always has, you know. Ancients have understood dreams. Ancients have built their lives around dreams. And we still can. And we, you know, I, I, it's been important in my life and the life of the people that I've worked with to, ha to have them actually have a dream journal and, and study their dreams. Well, Dr. Gladys, let me ask you a little bit about what you've learned about life. Having been as healthy as you are at 102, you know, it seems conventional wisdom is that you hit 65 and you're on this long declining slide into oblivion. What have you learned about aging that is more reality-based? Well, you know, it's not like I haven't had obstacles along the road. I've had patients say to me, well, Dr. Gladys, you just wouldn't understand because you've had it so easy. Honey, if you only knew. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, life has its teachings. And I didn't actually accept the fact that I had a voice that I needed to trust until I was 93. Because when I started grade school, I had to repeat the first grade twice because I was so dyslexic that I couldn't read. I couldn't add or subtract the numbers. They jumped all over the page. Didn't make any sense to me at all. And I was the class dummy. So even as I got into the whole practice of medicine, I was working and doing and writing things and so on, I still didn't really trust my own words really well i i kept working with it and working with it at that point i really got it that i had a voice that had to be heard i was going to use it and i was going to use it any way it seemed right for me to use but i was 93 yeah, and you've been prolific at writing these incredible books since then in your 90s and into your hundreds. And I know there are even more books to come from you because this this is your prime. This is where you're handing down what you've learned, your perspective. And Dr. McGarry, I want to say thank you. I want to thank you for caring about people. Thank you for reaching out and wanting to make a difference even at 102 years old, thank you for having a purpose. And please thank stay you. healthy because we sure <laughs> need you now, maybe more than ever. The book is called The Well-Lived Life. There are a lot of secrets in there, folks, that you will love. Make sure you check it out. He is a producer, director, and storyteller who's created video biographies on some of the most iconic and successful people in the world, all to extract the wisdom from their experiences to pass it on to the rest of us. Nick Nanton is next on Growing Boulder.
Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Mark here on Growing Boulder, and you're about to meet a guy who's found a way to make a living by doing what he loves. He's a a guy who's reinvented himself from musician to filmmaker, someone who's continued to evolve as a person as he's gone along. Now, Nick Nanton is an Emmy Award-winning producer and director who's interviewed some of the most successful icons of our time. What he does is create video biographies, not just as a way to honor them, but as a way that we can all learn something about what it takes for us to reach our dreams. Here's Mark to introduce us. Whatever else it may be, life is a great teacher, and whatever else Nick Natton might be, he's an eager student. The more I interview people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I'm like, man, I could get a 40, 50-year shortcut here. Natton is a musician and songwriter with a law degree who co-founded a global branding agency. He's helped more than 3,000 clients in 60 countries build personal and corporate brands. In 2010, he decided to help himself achieve his dream of becoming a documentary filmmaker. 22 Emmys and more than a decade later, he's produced and directed documentaries on Peter Diamandis, Rudy Rudiger, and Dick Vitale, a series with Larry King, and films on everything from human trafficking to service dogs for veterans. His secret? Creative persistence. I do get told no often. I learned, I think, from the music business that no is, you know, there's a lot of no's. You just can't take them personally. And also, I think I've just learned that um, I've learned, obviously, just because it's a no today doesn't mean it's a no tomorrow. And I also, um, I would say I ride the line pretty well between persistence and annoyance. I try not to annoy people, but I also, when I see an opportunity that I think would also be good for them, I try to, I try to make it known. So I make it hard to say no once they're ready to say yes. Probably as scared as I've ever been in my life, to be honest with you. And once they do say yes, they're always glad they did. And I was blown away, blown away by the brilliant job he did. Nick is a winner. He has a way of connecting with people and making those people feel important. He made me feel like the most important guy in the world, and he really just was as good as I could never expect him to be better. What draws you to a particular person or subject? I'm always looking for stories with heart. I mean, that's, I'm not interested in doing exposés. I'm not interested in doing stories, unauthorized biographies. If I cannot bring hope to a subject, why would I cover that? I'm super intrigued with life experiences, and I've just found that people who've accomplished great things in life have also had great lows. And, uh, and I'm just intrigued to sit at the feet of masters and find out, like, tell me more about that. Is there one lesson that you've learned that sticks out from the others as different and diverse as all of these people are that you've interviewed? The one topic that comes up every time I interview a really successful person is curiosity. And they say, they all say, I'm just relentlessly curious. The people who I work with who have achieved the most in life, no matter what age they are, they're always still learning. They're driven by the fact that there's more. There's more I could be learning. There's more I could be doing. There's more I could be sharing. So they're, they're curious. They're constantly learning. Um, and they believe that, you know, 
that tomorrow could be better than today, no matter how old I am. It let's, you know, my future is brighter than my past. Nanton's own story is as inspiring as those he tells. He's a case study in the pursuit of personal passion and social impact. The secret, he says, is focusing and serving. So the first thing you have to do is you have to start shedding the things you don't like doing, which that's the fun part. Make a list of the things you hate and start getting rid of them. I've always found that if you look around in your immediate surroundings and find out and look, look for someone who needs to be served, someone who needs help, you'll find a calling real fast. And once you do discover your passion and find your calling? If you want to be successful in life, there's really sort of three main things you need to do. You need to show up on time, do what you say you're going to do, and say please and thank you. And if you do those things, it's amazing the doors that open. How would you describe your, your skill set? I know with humility, but, uh, and I know it's very broad. You can do many, many things. But there has to be one or two things that are responsible for opening the doors that allow you to, to do the rest of it. I'm really bad at most things in life, Mark. I found that I'm pretty good at this one thing. And so I just, all I try to do is figure out who is the next person I could have a great, impactful conversation with that would lead to some sort of outcome that we both agree would be positive. I have impactful conversations that lead to produced outcomes. That is all I do. The blessing of age is the opportunity to continue learning about yourself, your strengths, weaknesses, passions, and purpose. Life is a journey of discovery, and few are making it with more impact than Nick Natton. You know, it really is rare to find somebody who excels behind the camera who also has the skills to capture the wisdom and the heart of the people that he interviews. Some great thoughts there, like not being afraid to ride the line between persistence and annoyance, about not being discouraged by the word no, and realizing that even people who have reached great heights have also had to deal with difficult lows. There is a lot we can learn from Nick Natton. Well, we're going to talk now for a minute about what can be one of the most difficult times in anyone's life. And it's that time when you and your siblings have to make some serious decisions for your aging parents. Now, there's a number of things to keep in mind that can make all the difference when it comes to making this time smooth and positive. And Mark talks about it with Senior Strategic Advisor for Caring Transitions, Carrie Coombs. What have you learned about the intricacies of the relationships between parents and their adult children because there is this role reversal that, that occurs uh, yeah. um, when we get older and our parents are still alive and we're trying to figure things out together. Uh, what have you learned about those kinds of relationships? Be very careful on changing the roles too much. They're still in a position of being your parent and they deserve to be honored and loved and cared for. The best thing you can do is just make sure that you're doing a supportive role and not taking a dominant role. Are there three or four or five tips that you could offer to adult children uh, about how to talk to their senior parents about making transitions? I would say number one, be positive about what is ahead. Embrace the fact that there's still a lot of life and a lot of activity and wonderful experiences that can still be had with planning. The worst thing I think that I have seen is, is when chaos starts running the show. And when you talk with a family member, be open, be transparent in your own life. Let them know that you're learning from them and say, you know, mom, dad, I know that we're going to be doing some changing as you go into this next stage that you've mentioned that you'd like to go and join up in this community and be part of something with people your own age and experiences. Tell me more about that. What's your drive behind that? 
So it's a conversation unfolding, right? It's just one that continues to build on itself. And when is it too soon to begin having the conversation? And, and beyond that, how do you begin the conversation with parents that really don't want to have it? I speak with my own family from a first-person experience. I talk to anybody in the family who will listen about what I would like. Because then I can really speak with a, a level of certainty. And believe it or not, it opens up a lot of conversations. When I talk about, you know, I don't really plan on living this certain way in this location all my life. Then people can say, well, I do. Oh, a truth moment. That opens up another conversation. So I speak from a me point of view, and then I hear what they say for themselves. And then I ask questions about that of them. So tell me why. Tell me why, Mom. Why would you like to stay here in this 3,000-square-foot house by yourself? And I hear her answers. And then I say, would you like to start building a plan around that? And then I can go into later on, you know that time when we were talking about the plan? What happens if, fill in the blank. And it's a conversation, once again, built on respect and listening. But I start with me, and that way it's okay for us all to talk about it together. A conversation built on respect and listening. What a great place to start. Excellent information from Carrie Coombs from Caring Transitions. Information at caringtransitions.com. We've had a lot to think about so far, and hey, we're not done yet. When we come back, we'll find out what's on Mark Middleton's mind. This is Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. This is Growing Bolder, one of the only shows anywhere that explores the issues and challenges that face every one of us as we age. Now, nobody dives into as many fascinating and thought-provoking topics as we do here, which is why we like to highlight something of interest at the end of every show, and we do it by giving Mark the opportunity to talk about what's on your mind this week. Well, you know, I've given a couple of talks lately, Bill, and I try to mix things up when I do that. But one story that I often tell that always gets a great response is is the story of Jean Calmay. I think it's important to understand the difference between life expectancy and lifespan. Lifespan is the age of the oldest living individual in any particular species, and in human beings, that's 122 years, 164 days. That's how long a French woman, Madame Jean Calmet, lived before she died in 1997. Uh, and here's the interesting thing. When Jean was 90, a 47-year-old attorney approached her and convinced her to enter into a real estate deal that's called a viage, which means for life in French. It's popular to this day, and here's how it works. 
The buyer agrees to pay the seller so much a month until the seller passes away, at which point the buyer can finally take possession of the property. Now, the buyer can't move into the property until the seller dies, even if the seller has moved out of it. So here's a 47-year-old attorney who approaches a 90-year-old woman who already at that time is 20 years older than life expectancy. And he says, man, I have made the deal of a lifetime. I'm paying her the equivalent of $500 a month for her two-story apartment in the south of France, a gorgeous apartment. And as soon as she dies, it's mine. How many years can she live past 90? Well, 30 years later, when he died at the age of 77, Jean was 120 years old, and the obligation to continue paying Jean passed on to his widow, who paid her for nearly three more years before Jean passed away. And at that time, the woman herself was in assisted living. So they ended up paying Jean the equivalent of three times the value of that apartment and never moved in a single day. And after this attorney died, when Jean was 120 years old, someone in the media asked her about it, and she said, Folks, you are never too old to make a good deal. And Bill, here's the deal about Jean Calmay. She lived 122 years. She drank uh, a glass of wine every night. She smoked a single cigarette every day until she was 117. She ate two and a half pounds of chocolate every week. But she rode her bike daily until she was 100. She lived alone until she was 110. She took up fencing when she was in her late 80s. She had what the French called the joie de vivre, the joy of life. And folks, that's what keeps you alive. And I guess the point is, you know, when it comes to aging, if you are into it, if you are into life and loving it, don't ever bet against yourself because you never know just how far this can take you. You need your health, you need your finances, you need your wellness, and then who knows, you'll be growing bolder for sure. We'll see you here again next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty. Endless fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon, said I Proud me, heated brow Ah, but I was so much older